right. While everybody's grabbing their seat, we have a nice reverb going here. How's that sound now? Okay. They can probably hear me down on I-10. All right, registration for the Chafer uh, spring semester is still going on through the 21st, which I believe is, was that Friday? Something like that. And West Houston Bible Church members can take up to two courses tuition-free, so if you're interested, there are some good courses uh, that are offered, and you can just audit them if you wish, and uh, there's there they look uh, two or three of them look very good. Also, our annual congregational meeting is coming up on February the 6th, two and a half weeks, and everyone's welcome to attend, but uh, we really encourage, I've, you've lost sound. Do what? Something? Okay. Um, we need at least a 50% quorum to, uh, for voting, so please be here if you're healthy. All right. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, which means that we need to confess sin in silent prayer to the Father, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin to Him. And after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your word because it gives us insight into the way we think, into the way our culture is, and it helps us to have an absolute metric for evaluating the world around us. We're not to be conformed to the world, Father. We pray that you might help us to recognize the areas of worldliness, the thinking of the world that is embedded uh, in our souls that we need to uh, flush out through taking in your word. And Father, we pray that you would give us great insight because most of us are too subjective to really want to uh, get rid of the things that make us comfortable. And we need to tr be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So we pray that your word will have a great impact on our thinking tonight. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, we have been studying in the area of the roles of males and females according to God's plan and design from, the, from creation. And so we're drilling down in a lot of different issues in the first three chapters of Genesis. And all of this, as we said, because this is our study of Judges, comes out of looking at Judges chapters 4 and 5 and the role of Deborah as a prophetess and as a judge because this is one of the first things that 
those who disagree with New Testament teaching want to bring up as if there's some uh, incredible uh, uh, contradiction there. And a lot of this is just because people don't know and don't understand these different roles and distinctions, what a prophetess was, what a um, what a, the role of a judge, and how that is distinguished from the role of someone who is a teacher of doctrine in the New Testament, and uh, these are dis- these are very distinct roles. But it has greater and wider implications because we live in a culture today uh, that is uh, absolutely absolutely overwhelmed by confusion when it comes to the differences between men and women. And I did not get it before I left the house, but I ran across a fascinating quote that was written in a journal article by William Manchester, a fabulous historian. Many of you have read uh, Manchester and his um, uh, did a fabulous biography of uh, Douglas MacArthur called American Caesar. He also wrote a three-volume work on Winston Churchill and many other uh, historical works. And in this article written in the beginning of the 90s, he said that we, are on, that th- we meaning American and American cultures, are on the edge of d- having to deal with the greatest crisis for our civilization, and that is the failure to understand uh, the differences between men and women. Great insight. And here we are some almost 30 years later, and we're even more confused, and people want to uh, revel in that confusion. And there's a lot more going on here than just people uh, want, than w- women wanting to get equal pay for equal work. That's one of the first things that pops up, but it's a long cry for that. That is just one sur- very surface issue, but what goes on underneath the surface is just revolting because we have to look at these things within the framework of worldviews. And that these, these ideas, the ideas that were promoted by the feminists of the 60s are truly coming to fruition today. Now, it wasn't on the surface, but they were saying it behind closed doors 60 years ago. But they knew far better than to say it out in the open, because if they did, they would be completely rejected. And uh, they knew that this had to be something that was a gradual shift to change society. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And I went over some of the quotes last week. And in terms of the review, I'll be going over some of those same quotes this time, that the agenda here was to radically transform American culture from a Judeo-Christian worldview to a completely pagan worldview. And these intellectuals that wrote about this, that were there, that were on the scene in the 40s and 50s, even back to the 20s and 30s, all understood exactly what they were doing, and they, uh, they knew they needed to infiltrate the universities and academia in order to influence the young minds. As, as Lenin said, just give me your, your youth, 
and in uh, 10 years we'll transform your culture. And that's exactly what has happened. And it took longer than that, but that's what's happened. So the basic problem is a shift away from the absolutes of Scripture. And here I'm, not, I'm going to bring out another point. We're not just talking about the absolutes of moral absolutes, of right and wrong, of just versus unjust, of sin versus uh, righteousness. What we're looking at is that God established borders and boundaries and divisions and kinds and uh, sexual distinctions in Genesis 1. And everything that has been happening, starting in, really going back into, uh, you can actually trace the, uh, the, the genesis of a lot of these ideas back into the 19th century even, but where it really begins to percolate is in the middle of the 20th century, especially after World War II, and that, that these ideas are designed to completely do away with all of those distinctions, borders, boundaries, and uh, sexes that God created. So it's a rebellion against God. Everyone wants to do what's right in their own eyes. Uh, and it's a rejection of the king. It's a rejection of authority uh, that took place. We talked about the fact that man in his rebellion worship is, worships the creation rather than the creator. And this is... Uh, is idolatry. And ultimately, it, go, it goes down to self, self-worship. Man wants to be God, just as Satan wanted to be God. Man wants to define his own reality. And we're getting to an era now where, as we're looking at some of the next developments in the Internet, uh, we're go- the next stage of the Internet is all about virtual reality. And I'm just a warning for parents and grandparents, don't go there. Don't go there at all, because what this is training children to do is to go into these virtual, this virtual world and define their own reality. And they live in that. You think you've got problems now with kids always having their nose buried at their iPhone or their iPad. Well, they're, they're not going to want to leave this virtual reality that they created in order to live in the real world. And so you get radically divorced from reality, and that's what's coming if, uh, if something doesn't stop it, but I don't think anything will. Uh, Proverbs 14.12, 16.25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And that's the way of paganism, two ways of looking at life, a pagan worldview which may have many, many, many different facets, it's the same thing that we've always heard in terms of the language of human viewpoint or biblical viewpoint, uh, the way of God uh, versus the way of man. And God's way is the righteous way. There's only one way, divine viewpoint. And paganism is what is destructive, and this is what happens in the culture of Israel and looking at it in light of some of the new material that's being that's come out and some old material, I've gone back in the last year and read a number of things on Gnosticism, and it's like we, we have taken a full-bore turn into antiquity and the ancient ways, the old ways, and the old ways and the ancient ways are filled with the occult, they're filled with uh, demonism, and this is just so destructive. 
Uh, and it has to, you have to get this in your thinking, this idea of monism, that everything shares the same essence from their view of God all the way down to just the basic physical things, the, the soil, uh, the geophysical environment, trees, the environment, all share in the same essence. So it all has some part of divinity in it. And so you end up worshiping the trees and you worship the earth, Gaia, Mother Earth. Your children, your grandchildren are being introduced to this as early as kindergarten and, and first grade in some places. And they have Earth Day and all of these things are designed to uh, focus attention upon the creation instead of the creator. We've seen that monism, everything shares the same being, but uh, in pagan monism, these barriers, these divisions, the kinds that God created. See, evolution, Darwinistic evolution was a way, a scientific, a pseudo-scientific approach to break down the barriers between the kinds that God created. And that was just the first stage and before long, you, once you break down the kinds, and the kinds become fluid because one thing evolves into another, then what happens, you get into the sexual distinctions, and the barriers go down, and one uh, sex is it's fluid from one sexual identity uh, to another. But the Bible establishes the, that God created everything in Genesis 1, and he established the kinds, he separated the light from the darkness. There's no intermediate. You don't see a fluid period that just sort of gets darker and darker and darker and dark. It's, it's absolute. It's light or darkness. You either have light or you have darkness. You're either in the water or you're on the dry land. These are these established boundaries that God has. But in the on the right side, in paganism, there's no boundaries. There's just one uh, continuity of being, which is just east, at the extreme end, it's the Eastern mysticism of Hinduism. So what we've done is we've looked at this topic of what the Bible teaches about manhood and womanhood, is that we looked at Genesis 1, 26 to 28, which emphasizes that God created Adam, which is the human race, male and female, he created them. That It is dimorphic. There are only two sexes, male and female. There's no, nothing different. Everything is like that. When Adam is naming the uh, animals and God is bringing them before him in Genesis chapter 2 to name the animals, he recognizes that here comes an animal. And this animal uh, looks, there's two of them, they look very similar but there's some differences. There's some physical differences. And you look at a lion, and you have a male lion with a big shaggy mane, and the female lion is uh, more smooth-haired. You look at a bull and a cow, and you see some obvious differences. And he begins, I wonder how long it took, four or five different pairs, and he begins to realize there's nothing comparable to him. You don't, he's, at that point, he's, all by himself. So the, what we see there is God says they're distinct. They're both in the image of God. They are not interchangeable. 
There may be some areas where they can each do the, uh, supply the same role, but ultimately they're not just interchangeable because interchangeable means that they are completely in every single way identical and, and, it's, and it's fluid. And so we looked at this, uh, some things about interchangeableness and this distinct identity. We looked at Genesis 2, 16 to 25 to see that embedded in that is a role distinction. The man is the head of the race. The woman is created from the side of the, a man to be his helper. There is a distinction there in terms of leadership and role. Now, all this, before we get done tonight, if we, I get there, is going to be really messed up by the fall. But that doesn't change the fundamentals. And so we'll look at Genesis, uh, get to Genesis 3.15. So God in Genesis 2.18 creates the woman as an, an ezer who is a helper or an assistant. Now, one of some of the things that we infer from what we know, what we've studied. Number one, God created these absolute divisions, kinds, barriers, light, darkness, land, sea, male, female. These are absolute, no merging between them. Second, male and female are equal in their essential nature as the image of God. Third, they are similar but different because they have different roles. This brought in the idea of form and function, the form of the design of the uh, male body and the female body were because they had different roles. So form followed function. The man was created first. The woman was created as a helper to the man to aid him in fulfilling the divine mandate. The man was created as the leader, the authority, and the spiritually responsible one. Fourth, there's an inherent authority structure. And we looked at that last time that under the fifth principle, that authority is not inherently evil. And authority exists within the Godhead. And there is submission of the different members of the Godhead to the Father. The Son is begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. There are role distinctions in the three members of the Trinity, and there is an authority structure. And if you deny that, that at the very core of reality, you deny that, that, uh, uh, that uh, being submissive uh, does not negate equality, then you are a heretic. Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are completely, absolutely equal in their essence, but they have different roles. And we live in a world that says different roles, the mandate for different roles is inherently sexist or racist or uh, something else, but it's wrong. They reject it completely. So based on Genesis 1-3, chapters 1 through 3 and Romans 1, uh, feminism, homosexuality, and transgenderism are, are all reject the divisions and distinctions God built into the creation from the beginning. They deny at its very core the literal meaning of Genesis 1 and 2 because it goes against their pagan philosophical presupposition defining the sexes. And ultimately, those three views, feminism, homosexuality, and transgenderism, are all products of a pagan, monistic worldview 
which is completely antithetical and hostile to a Judeo-Christian worldview. So we can summarize it this way. First of all, feminists hold to a heretical view of authority and a heretical view of Christ. The position of paganism, feminism, and Satan is that submission means inequality. They define it that way. They cannot think about submission as indicating equality. It's completely foreign to them. When they hear that as a wife you submit to your husband, they see, well, that means I'm unequal. That means I'm a, I'm a doormat. That means, and all of that is because you've absorbed just this hostility to God that it comes from that worldview. This is why Satan rebelled. He hates submission to authority. He wants to be the only one obeyed, which is really ironic because in offering de- deity to, uh, to Eve, he created a, a, a monster. Now we have seven billion people on the planet who all want to compete with him for, to be God. And everything is out of control. So this tells us the issue of respect for authority and proper submission to authorities in every area of life is central to understanding the significance of the angelic revolt uh, for human history and for our uh, Christian life. Uh, One of the problems with the uh, whole LGBTQ movement and uh, other movements is that they insist that men and women are not different because they, because for, as they look at it, they're completely, totally, absolutely interchangeable. And what that does is it breaks down the formal sexual differences. And it isn't just about sexuality and intercourse. It is about uh, soul identity, because God created the souls, male and female. There are those uh, differences, and they have tried to completely uh, eradicate uh, all of those things. So let me go to the next slide here. The current argument is that the the major premise is men and women are equal and that means interchangeable and their second premise is if they are interchangeable then they are the same and therefore no barriers exist that there is complete fluidity between being male and female it all depends on what you want to be you define your own sexual identity as many times during the day as you want to. You can feel like a woman in the morning, a man later on, somewhere in between. You have, now I understand, 120 genders, so you have your choice as to what you want to be along the way. Uh, Third point there is to assert that males and females are equal in the sense of interchangeability, though, denies that which is of their essence. It denies the essence of femininity and masculinity. And women will never be what God wants them to be if they operate on a pagan view of femininity and men will always have a distorted view of themselves and masculinity if they don't get straightened out by the Bible. 
we can never realize who God made us to be if we aren't biblical, if we try to absorb so we don't see to, seem to be in conflict what the world says. By changing something's essence away from what God, God designed it to be, you change what it is. And in this case, you destroy its value. You destroy feminism, femininity and you destroy masculinity. Men will not be real men and women will not be real men, women. And that's what is seen in the whole, uh, one of the many themes in Judges is that you start with women and men, uh, with a high view of women and men at the beginning. And you see this changes as you go through Judges until you get to the end and women are abused, women are not respected, uh, women are just uh, treated as sex objects by Samson, and then you get to the story with the Levite and his concubine and the fact that he allows her to just be totally abused and gang raped by the uh, citizens in uh, Gibeah, and the result is that it's, it's just horrific. But they be, have become as bad as the Canaanites. And that was normative in Canaanite culture. And so this is where paganism goes. As much as they may talk about certain ideals, it, it, it not only has, have things not gotten better, they've gotten worse. Because the pagan culture cannot, ha- cannot really address the, the issues of reality. So we talked about spotting the differences, and this is kind of fun to just just uh, um, joke around about this, but it's amazing. We're going to get to this tonight. It's amazing the, the complexity of the differences between men and women from early in the gestation period. The, little girls inside the womb and little boys inside the room, womb start forming their... Uh, uh, female characteristics and their masculine characteristics very, very early. And once they get to that point in the womb where they're developing uh, the, the distinctive hormones to each sex, those hormones affect brain development, they affect uh, the nervous systems, they affect all of the different organs, they defect, affect metabolism. Uh, it, it's in, uh, unbelievable how much difference is set before they ever come out of, of the womb. And to deny that, which is what happens in, in, in the whole trans movement, is just, just absurd. So the world, the world that is human viewpoint or paganism comes along and says, these differences are just imposed by culture. There's no real differences. There's no ultimate differences. They're just cultural norms that restrict potential and should be totally eliminated. Maleness and femaleness are just social constructs. That's just something you made up in your mind. Influenced by society. And the individual determines which gender they are. In contrast, the Bible says God created Male and female equally in his image of great value, God's representatives on the earth. Each one has been so designed physically, spiritually, and in their soul to fulfill specific roles or functions for which God created them. And this is 
so important to understand those, those basic, uh, basic distinctions. Now, I quoted this for, for you last week from uh, J. Budajewski's uh, book, The Meaning of Sex, and he also has a book called How to Stay Christian in College, which I recommended. And he is summarizing some of the distinctions between masculinity and femininity, or manhood and womanhood, uh, with these various concepts. Now, he's not just somebody who uh, fell off the truck yesterday. He's not somebody who's just a, uh, a radical, conservative, right-wing Trump supporter that doesn't have any brains. This guy is a professor at the University of Texas. He's a tenured professor of government and philosophy. He's written a number of books. He's been in charge of a number of doctoral students and research projects, and he is highly respected for the kinds of things that he has written. And he writes about the differences between women and men. He says women, in their essence, have the potentiality for motherhood and everything attendant. That fits the biblical framework that God created the male and female, uh, and he created the male and female in the image of God. What's the next thing he says? And you are to be fruitful and multiply. The first of several commands in the next verse come to start with the first command that relates to their maleness and their femaleness. And so there, that distinction is there. To understand the purpose for the human race and for the sexes is to go back to God's purpose and design. For men, he says, men in their essence have the potentiality for fatherhood and everything attended. Now, this doesn't mean that women can only be mothers, and it doesn't mean that men can only be fathers. But what it means is that only men can be fathers and only women can be mothers. But they can do a lot of other things. There are things that they can overlap on, but that this is, according to God's plan, the most definitive distinctive between men and women. This is not to, he goes on to say, this is not to ignore the many similarities between men and women as a first glance recognized with the two pictures of a spot the difference worksheet. To be sure, male and female are two kinds of humanity. What they, what they share in common binds them together under one classification, mankind, humanity. Why, is it, why do we always call it mankind? Biblically, do not let the world push you into their mold. It's not humankind. It's mankind. Why? Because it all goes back to the first... Adam, once you start buying into this and, and letting the world force you into it, you're denying what the scripture teaches. It's called mankind because Adam is created first, the man is created first, and then the woman, and so we're all related to the male. Why is that important? Because that means that we all are in Adam and we can all be in Christ. Because Christ, as the second Adam, is the one who was able to pay for the sins of every human being in history. Because he's genetically related to every one of them. So this whole thing about mankind is critical. It has a theological foundation in the scriptures. And you won't find too many people who ever bring that out. But language is what it is. That's the, these are the kind of words that the Holy Spirit used. And 
if you buy into what liberalism says, then the Holy Spirit chose racist words and sexist words, and, and God's just a horrible, evil person. And that's, that's where they want you to go. They want to destroy your ability to appreciate and respect the Bible because it uses these antiquated, out-of-date, sexist terms. Stephen Clark uses, says, uh, to use an analogy, the nature of a, building, of, a, of a building material, whether it's steel, concrete, wood, or brick, will influence the way a competent architect designs a building without determining everything about the building's design. In other words, the function is the function de- is de- determines the form. So that's the problem we've got is we're thinking that form and function are completely equal and there does it form does not affect uh, function at all. What Colin Smothers says in his uh, article on the fallacy of interchangeability, by the way, Barb will be posting that up on the uh, internet in the same box with the, the, um, uh, the video and the audio and everything for this, for this lecture. Um, we have severed uh, form from function and as a result have left both form and function up for redefinition. That's an important statement. It means what we've done is that, that we can make form and function whatever you, the individual wants it to be. You define your own reality. You define your own sexual identity. He says, instead of considering the innate connection between the natural order of male headship in the home, natural order, this is how God created it, and male leadership in the home and church, and male and female natures, the egalitarian-equalitarian impulse has insisted on the sole basis of the Trump-all principle of equality that men and women are functionally interchangeable in the home and in the church. Now, there's a couple of words there that I want to deal with. The egalitarian and equalitarian impulse. The, there's a breakdown that's occurred over the last 30 years in this debate. Those who believe the biblical position that the woman and the man are to complement each other, the male was created first, the woman to be the a- a- assistant to help the man achieve his God-given purpose. He can't do it by himself. So it's not good for a man to be alone. He needs the, the, the wife. He needs a companion. And so there is a complementary position there. And so that view is called the complementarian position. And the egalitarian or equalitarian view is the view that men and women, male and female, are totally intercha- interchangeable in every aspect. He goes on to say, for the intersectional gender activist is not content with the triumph of the legalization of same-sex marriage. That was just a stepping stone on the path to complete destruction of sexual identity. He says, if men and women are interchangeable in both form and function, which today is sacrosanct truth in many quarters that men and women are identical in form and function, then for a man to become a woman is no feat at all. It's really no feat at all. They are interchangeable and thus indistinguishable already. 
Thus we arrive at the ultimate Hegelian synthesis, man is woman, woman is man, androgynous bliss. That we're all one, so these barriers are gone, so men and women are completely interchangeable, men with men, women with women, any one of the 120 genders with any other one of the 120 genders, because they're all the same. It leads to androgyny. The functional interchange paves the way for a formal one. If a woman can do anything a man can do in the home, why the need for a man in the home at all? Would not two women suffice? Would not two men? The fallacy of functional interchangeability leads to sexual interchangeability, and with it nothing less than the redefinition of society. That's the goal redefinition of society. Now, I've quoted this several times, but it's important. Androgyny is the sacrament of monism. That is the goal in monism, a complete removal of all these barriers so that there's just one sex, androgyny. Now, I ran across this quote today that just was one of those things that just opens up a lot more information to us and understanding. In this same journal, this is in the uh, ICON, which is a new publication put out by the Council of Biblical Womanhood and uh, Manhood. Michael Haken writes a short essay at the introduction to the second uh, second journal that came out, the first year, second volume, not the second Second, volume, second year, but the uh, second volume of the first year. He said, The earliest heresy, which consumed much of the church's energy, Gnosticism, was first and foremost concerned with anthropological matters. Anthropological means things that have to do with the nature of mankind. Okay? A lot of times you hear anthropology, you think of archaeologists and they're working on finding uh, humans who find the missing link, and we think of anthropology that way. But anthropology, it defines a segment of uh, biblical theology. What does the Bible say about the nature of humanity? What does the Bible say about God, God's makeup and his creation of humanity. Everything we've been talking about the last four or five weeks is all under the category of biblical anthropology. Then you get into sin and what the results of sin and uh, all of these other things. So usually a study of biblical anthropology is taught in conjunction with homardiology, which is the theology related to what to sin. So these anthropological matters have to do with understanding human identity. Who are we? What's our purpose? What's our function? Do we have a purpose? Do we have a function? So he goes on to say Gnostics, who first appeared in the era of the New Testament. Now, that's not quite on target. Full-bore Gnosticism doesn't come in until the second century. But it, it, you have early, these ideas are there in the late first century. They're just not systematized yet. Uh, 
Gnosticism denied the goodness of the material realm. They're heavily influenced by Platonism. In Platonism, the ideal is good, but physical matter is corrupted. So anything that's physical, anything material, is by definition already corrupted and evil. And so you have, to, you have this dualism that, that takes place there. So they denied the goodness of the material realm, leading them to deny the goodness of the human body. God created us, body, soul, and spirit, in his image. And that means that there's nothing evil about matter. When God finished everything, uh, he said it was according to plan, but there was no sin yet. So there's no evil yet. Matter is not inherently evil as it came forth from the creation of God. And so Gnostics denied the uh, goodness of the human body and thus the possibility. See, all these ideas have consequences. If you deny that the human body is, is fundamentally good, which it was because God created it in the garden, then you deny the possibility of the incarnation. Because if the body is inherently evil, then God cannot incarnate himself in a human body because to be material is evil. And so it only, uh, one of the forms of Gnosticism was called Docetism. And it had the idea that Jesus could not have been a physical flesh and blood human being because that would have corrupted him with sin. So it just appeared to be uh, physical called docetism. He didn't actually die on the cross because that would have implied a physical body. It just appeared that he was on the cross. So it denies the possibility of incarnation and of bodily resurrection. This is one of the greatest evil systems in the uh, ancient world was Gnosticism. And it was a big problem for about four or five hundred years in Christianity tied in with Neoplatonism. He goes on to say, some of the authoritarian writings of the Gnostics, such as the so-called Gospel of Philip, argued that the fall of humanity took place when there was the separation of male and female from what was originally an androgynous person. Now you say, wow, that sounds weird. Well, that's only because you've been listening to Bible teaching most of your lives. I was witnessing to a guy in Denver sometime in the late 70s and uh, was talking about the original sin, and he said, well, the original sin was sex, and ever since mankind had sex, we've been sinners. I I, I said, well, how did you get that idea? Well, that's what the Roman Catholic Church taught me. I don't know if they did or not, but, you know, it was all perverted in his mind. So what Gnosticism taught was that it's, God creates Adam as an androgynous person, and it's when he splits into male and female that sin begins. Well, who split him? Who created the woman out of the man? Well, God did, so that would make God the author of evil. But then the the God of the Old Testament is not the ultimate God. It's a complicated system. So the goal of their salvation is to overcome sexual differentiation. So you think all this problem with transgenderism is something new? 
This goes back to the first centuries. Paul was having to deal with this. John was having to deal with this. All the, all the gospel writers who were going into the paganism of the Greeks and the paganism of the Romans were having, having to deal with this. And in fact, we'll look at this when we uh, do a flyby on 1 Corinthians 11, that one of the problems that they had in Corinth was cross-dressers. That's why Paul is talking about men need to identify themselves with a male-oriented haircut and women need to adorn themselves with a feminine haircut and so that they are not dressing like the other. Have to respect those differences between men and women. Uh, let's go on. So the res- uh, response to this was you had Christian authors like Irenaeus in the middle of the second century who wrote a book called Contra Heresis against the heresies, and he's dealing with Gnosticism through, through most of that. Um, he, he affirmed the goodness of the original creation of male and female, and thus the goodness of sexual differentiation, and by implication, the goodness of sexuality. So in the ancient world, these cultures were all based on the nature religions, which are all... Um, all go along with some forms of monism, and so they had problems with homosexuality, they had problems with identity confusion. But God makes it clear that there are distinct roles and the function is related to form. So the Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make an azer for him. So as we look at the differences, we're reminded of Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pastures. Pasture. Now, I've got most of this from two sources, although I've read some things in a couple of other sources. Both of these are going to be posted on the uh, website with this lesson. So that you can download, there's just way too much material. The Stephen Clark chapter is, uh, I believe it's uh, 37 pages long in Word. I'm not going to go through all of those details. And I'm not going to do it on um, uh, Greg Johnson's either. It's also very long and very detailed. But I want to hit some of the high points for us. So when we look at this whole issue, I'll start off with uh, Greg Johnson. He organizes the categories of differences between men and women, male and female, uh, in terms of, number one, the ethological observations on sex. Ethology is the study of human behavior and social organization from a biological perspective. So it's that study of human behavior and social organization as it relates to male and female. Second, he looks at sex differences in non-nervous system physiology. Then three, he'll look at sex differences in the peripheral nervous system. Fourth, he looks at the sex differences in the hind brain and limbic system. Now, the uh, limbic system is the complex system of nerves and networks in the brain that control the basic emotions and drives. So we're looking at these differences in neurological functions 
between men and women. And it's fascinating. You can do uh, various scans of men's brains while you have different, they're, they're doing different things, and women, you uh, scan their brains, and they work very differently, very differently. God designed women with a function of the brain that relates primarily to their role as motherhood and men primarily in relationship to their leadership of the home and providing for the home. Uh, there are sex differences in the cerebrum, sixth sex differences that are evident at birth, and seventh sex differences in stress management. You know, just anyone who's been married for any length of time recognizes that women and a man and a woman will go out to dinner with another couple. And you come back and they talk about it afterwards and half the stuff the woman recognized and saw and understood were oblivious to the man. And I remember when I was with a group of, there were really only three of us that had been accepted at Dallas Seminary. And the pastor of a church had us in a, in a group to uh, go over a lot of issues and uh, prepare us in some way for going to seminary. And he made the point that one of the big issues was going to be, was going to be the, these issues between men and women and what was coming down the road. And that was one, one of two things I remember. The other thing he said is that men never counsel in any kind of a situation uh, alone with a woman said, what a woman will tell you, I mean, let's say you're doing uh, marital counseling or, pre- or some kind of problem in the marriage, and if you as a man go in and you listen to the husband, you listen to the wife, you have both of them there, that's what I always do, because I, I, I don't want to listen to one person's story when the other one's not there to defend themselves. So, and I always try to have a woman present, and there have been several times when I've been able to have a, a woman present who was doctrinally mature and insightful, and I would come out of that session and she would say, well, did you notice this and you notice that? And of course, it would just, no, had no hadn't, hadn't a clue. And that's why it's important. And what this pastor had pointed out, it said, a woman talking to a man alone is going to pull the wool over his eyes in, in a split second. But if there's another, another woman in the room that will spot what she's doing, she won't try it. And, and, and that's just fundamental. And I've heard that now over the last 40 or 50 years. I've heard that from numerous, numerous pastors and professors. So there are these real differences. Now, the conventional wisdom that came out of the 60s and 70s was that any behavioral differences between men and women is just uh, the result of culturally imposed norms. It all comes from the culture. None of it is natural. Okay, so this is the whole nature versus nurture argument, and their view is it's all nurture. It all has to do uh, with with the culture. Uh, Greg... Johnson, as he starts his article, he says, raises the question, he says, are there differences in male and female behavior patterns? 
If there are measurable differences, to what degree are they culturally or biologically based? The current scene suggests that such differences are largely culturally imposed, that such gender norms restrict our full potential, and that we should actively eliminate all cultural elements that continue to foster traditional attitudes that the sexes might be differentially gifted. Let's look at the evidence. Stephen Clark, in his book, says, every known, this is how he begins chapter 16, which is the chapter that we're putting up on the website. Every known society acknowledges differences between men and women in its traditions and social structure. Many of these differences, such as muscular strength, vocal pitch, sexual function, and anatomy, are plainly visible to all peoples. However, most societies also place much weight on other types of differences between men and women. Differences in personality, social relating, and aptitude. If differences such as these exist between men and women, as most societies assume, then the belief that men's and women's roles should not be structured in an identical fashion receives important support. In other words, he's saying if this is true, then we can't support absolute interchangeability. For this reason, he says, debate over the existence, extent, and significance of the differences between men and women has been a prominent feature of the current controversy considering concerning men's and women's roles. So he goes on to say, does scientific data support the contention in this book that the purpose of God for men and women as revealed in Scripture may have been created into the human race? To what degree is human behavior determined by biological factors and to what degree by environmental factors such as socialization and cultural conditioning? He asked if biological differences compel uh, certain behavior. And his answer to that is no. That biological uh, differences do not compel any course of action. However, that doesn't mean that certain behaviors are not biologically influenced uh, in terms of the patterns for the role of men and women. Now, as we look on this, um, uh, Greg, Greg Johnson, I think was, um, uh, yeah, Greg Johnson says, uh, in 19, a 1974 book, quote, a rather complete survey of the literature to determine whether there was consistent experimental support for any of the traditional gender stereotypes, they found that the majority of studies revealed that males scored higher in levels of aggressiveness, dominance, self-confidence, and activity level. Females scored higher on verbal ability, compliance, nurturance, and empathy scales. Women tend to socialize more intimately with a few friends. Men are more apt to form larger groups. And, of course, all of this is well documented. Now, when I talk about some of these things, I think that we had, had a really good char chart here in uh, Stephen Clark's book. He said you can have, uh, generally speaking, women are less aggressive than men. 
Generally speaking, men are more aggressive than women. But you have these two bell curves so that this is the norm in this section here for women. But you have some women who are really, 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 really passive and some that are more aggressive than the norm and they're as aggressive as many men. And some may be more, uh, are going to be more aggressive. See, all the men in this area, they are less aggressive than these other women. So these are general traits that these studies point out. They're not absolutes. They're not true for every single woman in every single situation or for every single man in every single uh, situation. Okay, says, um, later on he writes, uh, this is Stephen Clark, says, do biological differences between men and women compel a certain approach to social roles? The answer is no. He goes on to say, does scientific data point to any biologically influenced characteristics in the human species that fit a pattern of role difference between men and women? The first question sort of limits, you don't go anywhere. The answer is no, so you end it. But that's not the right form of the question. The right form of the question, or the better form of the question, is the scientific data point to any biologically influenced characteristics in the human spe- uh, species that fit a pattern of role differences uh, between men and women. Okay, so... Johnson points out that certain biological differences between men and women. Now, some of you are not going to like this, and I didn't say this. He said it. Studies develop it. The basal metabolic rate is about 6% higher in adolescent boys than girls and increases to about 10% higher after puberty. We've all seen that with boys just have more energy and burn up more. During metabolism, girls convert more energy into stored fat, while boys convert more energy to muscle and expendable circulating reserves. At age 18, girls have almost twice the body fat, about 33% of boys. Boys at age 18 have about 50% more muscle mass than girls, particularly in the upper body. Males, on the average, have denser, stronger bones, tendons, and ligaments, which allow for heavier work. Differences in metabolism and muscular ability likely give males a push in the more energetic direction. I think it's important to look at what's happening on the athletic scene as the feminist movement has pushed for years that they have... Uh, more money spent on sports for women, uh, increased a- athletic training for women, etc. And now all of a sudden they are absolutely silent when it comes to transgender. I don't know if you're a if you're biologically a man and you're going to a woman. I don't know if that's transgender male or female, but you've got to 
You got a guy who wants to compete against girls because now he can win. This is happening, I think, it's at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's, setting, he's breaking all the records. And nobody's saying, that guy's a man. Because biologically, all of these things are true for him, and they're not true for a woman. And he's going to win almost every time, or is. Males have more sweat glands and can dissipate heat faster than females. Women have a thicker layer of subcutaneous fat that acts as insulation and energy reserve. Consequently, they can withstand cold better and have better energy supply for activities requiring extraordinary endurance. Women have raised their performance in long-distance swimming, running, and other endurance sports until it is similar to that of males, which their physiology favors. But males retain a significant advantage in sports that require short bursts of strength, such as sprints. Men, on the average, have larger windpipes, branching bronchi, and 30% greater lung capacity taken as a percent of their respective body weights. Men also have relatively larger hearts and can pump a larger volume of blood. Males have 10% higher red blood counts, higher hemoglobin readings, and consequently higher oxygen-carrying capacity. They have higher circulating clotting factors, including vitamin K, prothrombin, and platelets. Their rapid clotting and higher basal metabolic rate leads to more rapid healing of wounds and uh, bruises. Women, on the average, he says, have more stored and circul- uh, have more stored and circulating white blood cells. They have more granu- granulocytes and B and T lymphocytes for fighting infection. Now, how many times do we hear about you know guys get sick and women never get sick? This is part of the difference between a man and a woman. And biological, God designed them to be this way. Uh, Second paragraph, they'll develop fewer infectious diseases and succumb to them for shorter periods of time. Ethologists argue that for females, caring for multiple offspring and interacting with other females and their offspring in social groups where communicable diseases can spread rapidly, this is a particularly advantageous trait. Males who have been historically less involved in these activities, but more involved in hunting, protection, building, war, etc., are more in need of a good wound healing system. Sex differences present in all the organ systems across various mammalian species go far beyond the superficial anatomical characteristics necessary for reproduction. These differences are direct responses to the levels of circulating hormones. This is one of the most fascinating things is the impact of hormones from the first trimester of gestation and how that affects brain development and body development and many, many other factors so that, you're, that God has designed this to produce a male and a female. These differences are a direct response to the levels of circulating hormones which differ significantly between the sexes. It is difficult to avoid the conclusion that these physiological differences predispose males and females to certain behavioral and aptitude leanings. The debate heats up considerably when we suggest that there are fundamental differences in the structure and function of the brain and nervous system that predisposes the sexes to certain behaviors and capacities. 
Nevertheless, it would be very strange to find hormones affecting all other systems and not the nervous system. Great observation. Studies suggest that females are better able to read the emotional content of faces such as anger, sadness, or fear. These more acute senses may give females a general advantage in social interactions. Women hear differently, see a broader range of color. They have a greater sense of smell than men do. And all of that seems to relate to what men will often call women's intuition. And at the beginning of his article, uh, Greg Johnson talks about a situation where uh, they're in the home, they're taking a picture of their uh, toddler, and they've got him propped up on a, on a little bench on a, on a cabinet top. And um, the photographer is trying to wave some toy to get his attention and to keep him smiling. And the kid suddenly lunges for this toy right into the arms of his mother, who saw it coming probably 10 seconds before the dad did. And then he talks of another situation where he's out with four, their four kids, all under the age of six, out in the front yard, and he's trying to help the three-year-old riding his little tricycle while the two-year-old is starting to make a beeline for the busy street on which they lived. And he had no idea what was going on. All of a sudden, his wife is swooping the kid up. She saw it from the window inside the house and was out there grabbing that kid long before the dad even had a clue. And he comments, he said, and he was instructed on parenthood at that point. <laughs> so anyway, I think that you know, it, it makes a case there are these differences are designed for the role that women and men are to have. The, he says the preceding arguments are an attempt to identify the original purpose for such differing allocated capacities given our heritage as hunters and, or agrarian people. At the core of our survival is the ability to find food and reproduce roles that were associated with men and women respectively in Genesis 3, 16 to 19. Females have been concerned more heavily with infant care due to breastfeeding and males with provision of food. In support of this basic division of labor, God has given each sex special gifts to carry out the task. Now, last of all, these differences in, in the sexes begin to take place even in the uterus. I just found this fascinating. He says, while both sexes, and he documents all of this in medical journals and medical textbooks and everything, so he's not just making this stuff up. He says, while both sexes have androgens and estrogens, the basic hormones difference between men and women, these sex hormones are found in quite different concentrations in the two sexes. Males begin reproducing gonadal testosterone at about the sixth or seventh week of gestation. This has an immediate effect on all of the organ systems, such that the heart rate, respiratory rate, red blood cell counts, and brain structure are already sexually divergent at birth. The male testosterone level is two to three times that of the female until puberty, at which time it becomes, on the average, 15 times higher than that of the female. Females produce about twice the estrogen of males prior to puberty and 8 to 10 times the estrogen after puberty. Female estrogen varies considerably depending on the time of the menstrual cycle. 
All of the sexually dimorphic physiological traits mentioned above seem to be rather directly correlated with the level and ratio of these two sex hormones. So his conclusion is that this is all designed by God for the purpose. Now, it's originally designed by God for the male and the female in the perfect environment of the Garden of Eden. But they didn't stay there very long. Something happened, and that's sin. And sin comes along, and because of sin, there are, just as we've seen, that there's changes in the serpent, there's changes in uh, the animals, the way in which they uh, eat. They go. Some animals went from being uh, gramnivores or herbivores to carnivores. All of these changes effect, uh, were affected. So you have physiological changes as a result of sin in both men and women. And that corruption goes forward. And that's what we'll look at next time in Genesis 3.16 and looking at these, uh, at these effects. But the conclusion is that because of sin, life is corrupted. We're not living in a normal world, and we're not living life that is normal. Everything is abnormal. It is the result of sin. Our souls are corrupted our desires are corrupted, our relationships, our responsibilities, everything in life is corrupted and corroded because of sin. But that doesn't remove God's original design for roles and functions within his plan. Men and women are equally in the image of God. Men and women are designed for different roles and functions. Sin corrupts our understanding Sin corrupts our biology. Paganism attempts to redefine the meaning of male and female. And what happens with redemption is there's the offer of a solution. And as regenerate new creatures in Christ, then some of these effects and negative trends and tendencies of our differences can be overcome when we walk with the Lord. And no matter what the problem may be, because I know of some tremendous ministries to uh, homosexuals that after they have spent time in the Word and being taught the Word, they their values, their tastes, their desires change. One of the classic examples today is a lady I've mentioned before, Rosaria Butterfield, uh, Champagne Butterfield. And uh, we've t- talked about her, uh, committed, radical, feminist, lesbian, um, anti-Christian, got saved while she was a tenured professor at the University of Rochester, totally radically changed her life. And uh, she's now married, and they, she was, t- I think, uh, beyond childbearing years, or they couldn't have children, married a pastor. They have tremendous ministry. She has a tremendous ministry. They fostered more than 10 children, I believe. And she has truly been someone to exemplify the sufficiency of God's grace in her life. And not too long ago, but probably two or three years or four years ago, 
Uh, she was speaking in the Washington, D.C. area, and Dan Ingram uh, went to hear her, and he went up afterwards to ask her a question, said, do you still have uh, a desire, do you still have an attraction, same-sex attraction? And she says, at times, he said, well, what do you do about it? He, she said, you can't feed the beast. You can't give in to any of it. You just have to get your face back in the word and rely upon God's promises and pray about it and go forward. But God's, God's word is sufficient and God's power is sufficient. And the reason that it doesn't seem to work for a lot of people is because they don't get serious with God. They really don't. They think they do. And she tells a story in her book of another, uh, a male homosexual that, wa- that she knew who, tr- who became a Christian, but for him, quote, it didn't work. And you look at what she said, you describe it, it's one, it works for one person because they, they give themselves to God. They really trust God for the situation, and they apply it. And the other, uh, other people just, just lose in the battle with sin. And we all do that in many areas that we struggle with. So that's the problem. But the grace of God is always sufficient, and it can handle any problem because there's no problem any human being faces in life that uh, what God wasn't aware of long before he created us. He, he knew what all the issues were, and he provided the sufficient solution. And that's what we always have to go back to, that, that sin has corrupted a lot. But in, in God's word, there's redemption and renewal. And that's what we have to, we, and you can't get that from a 10-minute sermonette on Sunday morning every, every, once a week. You have to really get into the word. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to uh, learn some of the ways in which you Uh, created men and women differently to fit their roles and function within your plan. And that does not minimize either, make one less or more significant than the other. And we pray because I know that there are people and families listening to this who are really struggling in some of these areas. And that your grace is always sufficient. But first we have to really get into the word and begin to transform our thinking and not to be conformed to the way of the world. And we pray that you will strengthen us in the inner man in these areas. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.